welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecino, presented by The Athletic. Today, Seth Partnow is here. He works at The Athletic, doing a bunch of uh, analytics work for us, doing a bunch of writing for us. I think that you're writing just about every day now, Seth, aren't you? Uh, pretty close. I, uh, I, with the confluence of, uh, of, of school, of, of teaching my daughter first grade, or participating in the teaching of first grade, uh, this week has been a bit of a crunch. But yeah, we're aiming for most every day during the playoffs. Yeah, I feel like uh, I'm also in a crunch, not for kids' reasons, but for uh, reasons that I will discuss on this podcast at some point in the next couple of weeks. But it's been a very busy time. It's very to mysterious. Try and, yeah, it's been a very busy time to try and find uh, find time to write in the midst of all of the craziness that happens whenever you're dealing with a pandemic and whenever you're dealing with a few different things going on. Yeah. So today on the show, we are going to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat defeated the Milwaukee Bucks in five games, and we'll move on to the Eastern Conference Finals. Seth obviously worked for the Milwaukee Bucks uh, previously, and we will uh, talk about, uh, in general terms, the way that the Bucks uh, struggled in this series. I guess is is that fair to say, Seth? Yeah, I think it's it's you don't want to be in a situation where because I knew more about like the decisions that were actually made and the options presented that, you know, I could talk more authoritatively about them than I could any other team if we were sitting in this in this, you know, kind of situation. And I don't really think that's I don't think that's fair from from a standpoint of of outside analysis, either from a, you know, a, a kind of a spill the tea um, standpoint, but also just, you know, we, we have to judge all these teams from what we can see and 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 you know there's 29 teams that I can look at that way and one that at least still at this point although that'll fade as the days go on still um one team that that you know I could bring a, additional color to that but that's not totally fair because if you broke any teams down decision made decisions ma- made at that fine level of of insider knowledge detail you could you could find fault or or give plaudits you know kind of as you saw fit so kind of wanted to avoid that sort of um that that almost cheating the test okay Seth you haven't spoken to Giannis I would imagine in over a year since you left the organization is Giannis going to stay or go please tell me Uh, I don't know I don't know (laughs) and and I'm and I am not going to speculate on that because who knows I mean the whole conversation that's the funny thing like nobody I mean just the the, we don't need to have that conversation right now they're not trading him that's all that matters I mean if if you wanted to if that conversation hadn't already been a conversation since last year's playoffs I don't think it's unreasonable to be like boy now but the fact that it's that 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 mill has been going for a year already just make i'm i'm tired of it already and i think it's bad that this is what we focus on yeah and he already has come out through uh an interview with chris haynes to say that he's not requesting a trade like he doesn't want to move on he wants to fight through look it's going to be a topic of discussion upon him whether or not he chooses to sign the Supermax extension that he is eligible to sign when the Milwaukee Bucks offer it whenever this offseason begins. But look, like, they're not moving him. This isn't a conversation worth having this summer, I don't think. 
They're like they're still a title contender with Giannis next year. This is not a New Orleans Pelicans situation with Anthony Davis, where the Pelicans were not competing for a title with Anthony Davis. The Bucks are genuinely competing for a title with Giannis. There is no reason to trade him this summer. They're not going to trade him this summer, even if he doesn't sign the Supermax extension. So we're just not going to dive into that, I think is reasonable, right? Yeah, we've spent too much time on it already. So after we get done with the Bucks and the Heat, we're going to talk about Billy Donovan being let go from Oklahoma City and what seems like a mutual parting. And then we're going to talk about just what the NBA season in 2020, uh, 2021 is going to look like, just because the two sides, the NBA Players Association and the NBA decided to move back the start of free agency, move back the draft. And uh, it seems like the dates that were speculated upon in regard to early December start for the 2021 season isn't really going to happen. So uh, Seth and I are going to talk about that. But before we get there, let's talk about the heat and the bucks. I guess that my first question for you would be, did anything about the way that this series played out specifically surprise you? Uh, in regard to how Miami defended them, in regard to how Milwaukee just struggled to adjust to anything. Did, did anything stun you? Um, I thought it was, and I think we talked about this a little before, I thought that Miami was a a difficult matchup. Um, I still thought the Bucks were favored and were going to advance, but I thought that there was ways about how Miami played on both sides of the ball that, that matched up well with the... Uh, with what the 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 Bucks did, I think they have. You know, I think we saw when Giannis was able to play. They have a number of players who uh, could physically kind of stand up to him a little bit. Um, though, frankly, I was surprised by a little bit by how well that worked because in the past it has been guys um, maybe a little bigger than kind of your your Jay Crowders and your your Andre Iguodala's yep. um, um, that that have that have managed to do that. I mean, I think the 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 example from last year was much more kind of the Marcus all Serge Ibaka. Um, and so like, okay, bam. And, and Jimmy Butler is very stout. Um, but so that on, on one hand, uh, on the other hand, um, just a team that is um, very much built to take advantage of kind of the Bucks traditional defensive scheme. Uh, one of the best, most aggressive top to bottom, most more guys on the floor who can do it kind of catch and shoot three teams in the league. Uh, that's Miami. Yeah. You know, that's and that's in guys who can do it off movement, guys who can do it standing still, guys who can relocate, all those different ways that. Uh, so it's not just a situation where you know, for the most part, Houston gets a lot of catch and shoot threes because uh, James Harden or Russell Westbrook breaks a guy down, defense collapses, kick, maybe maybe throw a swing pass after it. Um, Miami has a lot of different kind of wrinkles, whether it's you know dribble handoffs, pin downs, uh, kind of reverse screening action, all this kind of good nerdy basketball stuff and then guys who are willing to shoot off movement um and they're very good at they were uh, i think they were the best team in the league at at, uh at at contested catch and shoot threes this year um and that seems like a pretty good recipe against against a team that wants to make you turn those shots down uh when they can run at you rather than um um you know be victim to guys who can who can still shoot with the hand in their face well, it's that, and I think that 
the way that Miami gets those shots is particularly interesting too. Not only the fact that they can make them, but the fact that Duncan Robinson sprints off of every action. He just moves, right? Uh, And because he sprints and because he's such a threat as a shooter, you really have to pay an incredible amount of attention to him. Uh, If you don't, he is going to get an open three and he's going to make it probably 50% of the time which is a disaster for a defense because it's like a 1.5 point per possession outcome. When he does that, and when he kind of rolls with those plays off of dribble handoffs with Bam Adebayo, right? Miami's really good at coupling that with backside cutting action as well that kind of opens up a defense from the inside out. And even if that defense recovers, Miami is really good at being unselfish and then finding that next kickout pass, uh, either to a guy that's spotting up or either to a guy that is relocated to get away from his help defender, uh, just within the scheme of their offense. I think that it's a remarkable, remarkable, uh, offense that, uh, offensive scheme that Eric Spolstra ran to specifically take advantage of what, Milwaukee brings to the table within their aggressive drop coverage. I, I'm not even sure how much of it was Robinson himself. I mean, he no he right, had, yeah, he it had wasn't some moments, Duncan. but I think it's it's as much having just number of guys on the floor who can, you know, um, you know. I don't think at this point you would say that that Tyler Harrow is a you know elite level like creator off the bounce, but right. you know you're, you're you're playing him if he's the third best creator on the floor. All of a sudden, you're running out of high-level point of attack defenders. Um, you know, you got you have one on Jimmy, one on Goran Dragic, and and now you've got a third guy who can you know run some pick and roll, get into some creases, and 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 create something. And that's and without that's even almost, accounting for Bam. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's where a lot of the creases were created is because you yeah. know the, okay, the the Bucks have in Eric Bledsoe kind of one you know, elite and in West Matthews against a specific type of player, maybe against a Jimmy Butler type who he can body up. I have another, but then you're, you're, you're getting into some, some pretty favorable matchups when you get down to that third level of, 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 uh, of kind of chase defender. Um, And that's, that's kind of, and, and, you know, it's almost, you know, mid, Spursy in terms of just sort of picking at a crease until like a crevice opens uh, because Miami has all these guys who can, you know, drive a closeout, who can, you know, re- make the next pass and relocate and then be a good three point shooter themselves. So it's it's not even any individual guy. It's the fact that there's three and four guys on the floor who can, you know, dribble pass and shoot. Well, and within that, and this is what drove me crazy about Milwaukee and what they were doing schematically, right? It's not just that they play an aggressive drop in pick and rolls with Brooke Lopez, right? They aggressively drop just about everyone who is involved in those screening actions. Like, even when it's Chris Middleton or it's, you know, George Hill because they've set, you know, like a... 3-1 screen for Jimmy Butler, right, Uh, with Goran Dragic or someone, or with Tyler Hero, right? They're still having that guy drop, and it creates so many creases, and I think that that's where the adjustment for me needed to be. I'm not saying that you can't play a drop when Brooke Lopez is on the court. I'm saying you need to be more willing to not drop one through four 
in pick and roll coverages. And they just didn't do that. And that's where I think Eric Spolstra really took advantage of what Mike Budenholzer was putting out there. I think that that's where, uh, that's where it just became too easy to read what Milwaukee was going to do every time. And the fact that there was no, you know, there were some slight adjustments in game four, but by then it's too little too late and you're just kind of fucked. And I think part of the times where it, it, it started to work less, and this was certainly, I think, uh, for the first quarter, quarter and a half of game five even, um, you know, Miami almost got away from that, that you know, multiple angles of attack approach and kind of tried to um, go one-on-one themselves. And especially, you know, playing with some desperation in games four and five, Miami, Milwaukee really upped the physicality both on and off the ball. And so that made it kind of gummy when when Miami was trying to just, you know, go straight ahead. And then as soon as they kind of started doing some ball reversal, started doing some misdirection, started doing some some drive and kick to the next guy who would drive and kick, and then all of a sudden you, you've got an open three, um, that's where it really it really kicked in. Because like you're saying, you're kind of if you're playing your your situations where you're you're basically you're giving up a crease um, when when you're you're funneling a guy in drop coverage to a not mammoth rim protector like you can you you if you if lopez drops and you chase over the screen then you can kind of okay well he's got to go to the basket and brooks right. it. whereas if it's you know if it's marvin williams or or a wing or something like that then just naturally some help comes and then the help comes and there's a kick out and now you're in a closeout situation and you're scrambling and you're recovering and and the ball pings around the horn and miami gets a catch and shoot three yeah, and look, like part of this is too that guys who have been slightly more inconsistent shooters throughout the course of their careers, let's say, uh, they knock down shots in the series. Like Jay Crowder knocked on knocked down a shit ton of shots in this series, right? Like Andre Iguodala was knocking down shots pretty regularly. Um, you know, Bam Adebayo bailed them out somewhat regularly with these mid-range jumpers late in shot clocks, right? They got, I don't want to say lucky because you make your own luck in a lot of these circumstances and the Heat did every single thing they possibly could to make their own luck in that series and to create efficient offense. But, you know, the series could have been different if guys just simply didn't make shots. And in Miami's case, they did make shots. And, you know, that, that does speak to the level of, uh, gamers, I think that they have, and that's a word that might frustrate you, but like, I think that guys perform, you know, they, they have a lot of guys that really do perform at the highest level when it counts. This, this Miami team is built with a lot of guys that I would consider 16 game players. Like Bam Adebayo is a 16 game player because you can utilize him in so many different ways defensively uh, and in so many different coverages. Jimmy Butler is obviously a 16-game player. Jay Crowder, to me, even so, like even though he struggled with Utah in the playoffs, like his switchability defensively and his ability to knock down shots is huge. Tyler Hero, that guy is just so fearless that he's almost always going to be a 16-game player. I think that, that is, that's kind of the difference for me in this series. They just had guys that really you could trust to knock down shots at a pretty high level. So I think that that's a good segue because I think we're focusing on the wrong, wrong end of the court right now. Yep. Um, I don't want to say that, that 
you know, Milwaukee's defense was fine in this series. It wasn't good, but they didn't get I don't think their defense got blown off the floor for for most of the series. Maybe parts of game 1. Yep. But that wasn't that wasn't where that wasn't where like they they were almost I don't want to say non-competitive, but where I mean the know, fourth quarter in be... game 3 was pretty bad. And like even so like they gave up what, 116 think, in game I, 2. I, like it was it wasn't that... great. No, but I think that's as much about like you're 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 throwing rocks at the backboard every time on offense and yeah, you're true. putting your defense in a bad situation and yeah, you're going to you're going to give up some points if your offense is is that stuck in the mud. Right. Because you're just you're 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 giving, you know, the the rebound off the rim uh it, it it you know it's it's almost an elastic collision that uh that gives pace to the to the other team coming back at you whereas if they, you know, if the ball nestles softly in the net it's cushioned and they have to you know walk it up and play against your set defense more or less um so i i think that 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 is as much of an issue as the defense was it's sort of the second playoffs in a row um the sort of lack of plan b um when facing okay well okay i don't care if that guy shoots I'll make him make another one and another one and another one um, because we're not letting Giannis dunk. And that's, you know, and that, that is the kind of the, 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 the cheat code of, of oh, the Bucks offense the last two years has maybe been, you have guys standing out who are just good enough shooters that, well, we got to pay attention to them. And then that's, that's enough room for Giannis to get in the paint and dunk on everybody. Right. Um, and against Toronto last year and Miami this year, he kind of ran up against a coach who, who did kind of the, uh, what, what is it? The alien invasion. What was the name of that show? Um, you know, but, but what if, what, what, what this defense presupposes of what if we didn't? And, and so you're, you know, playing a team that's, that's, you know, playing a very extreme shrink into boxes and elbows and, you know, willing to run it at, at mediocre shooters and, and live with the, live with the consequences. Yeah. I think that that's a hundred percent right. I think you hit it on the head. Like the biggest problem with Milwaukee is that they signed a lot of shooters who are good shooters, but they don't have a ton of gravity in part because they're mostly spot up shooters. So this is this is I've I've written about this a couple of times this year. There's a term I've heard bandied about the league. Um, it's the difference between a guy being a threat and a guy being a weapon. Um, you know, you talked earlier about Duncan Robinson and 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 what his kind of sort of movement creates. That's a weapon. You have to account for that. Um, you know, the Bucks have have guys who are uh, I, you know Chris Middleton's a weapon, but other than that it's a lot of guys who are much more threats. So yeah, I'm aware of where he is, but I'm not, that's more being aware. So when it's time to close out, I know where I'm going. Well, yeah. Then and I can't come off his body. Yeah. That that's a hundred percent. The big thing to me is that whenever you have guys, you know, to use your terminology who are threats and are specifically just threats from a standstill, as opposed to threats to constantly relocate after their defender helps, the defender feels like he can stunt to Giannis and then recover right back out to where that spot up shooter is without really any sort of recourse, right? In the Bucks case, that's exactly what happened. They have a lot of spot up shooters and not a whole lot of off ball movement. 
And guys like Jay Crowder and, for instance, even Tyler Hero can stunt toward Giannis whenever he's driving, potentially force him to pass, and then recover back out to contest that open three-point shot that isn't really open any longer. Now, Giannis in game four started to adjust to realizing that Miami's defenders were kind of just stunting as opposed to like straight up actually helping to cut off these driving lanes. Right. And I think that's why he got off to like the 18 point and 11 minute start. He just was like, fuck it. I'm taking over, going downhill and driving toward the basket. And I don't think either any of these guys are going to stay in front of me to stop me from doing it. But again, that came a little bit too late in my opinion, a big part of why it was a problem for Milwaukee was they just have spot up shooters, not guys who are good coming off of, off of off ball actions. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that that's some of it, it that that's some of it, and then just again not there's a, there's a certain uh, stationary nature to okay. Uh, if you if this this is a really good play, we're going to run this play every time. Uh, you know where it's coming from, but the talent of the people involved is such that stop it. Okay, well you've had a week to prepare for this play. You've now seen it forty times, um, and without sort of varying the angle, varying the rhythm, varying any preparatory action, um, it it is it becomes a little almost rote to to defend it, and you almost get yep. uh, you get velocitated like. You know, major league hitters can hit a hundred mile an hour fastball if all you throw is hundred mile an hour fastballs. Yep. Now you mix in a, a you know a ninety one mile an hour changeup, and then all of a sudden they're 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 now behind the the fastball again because you're you've you've given them two things to think about, and there 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 isn't a changeup necessarily, or at least in those two series there wasn't enough of one. Yeah, I totally agree with you, and. A big part of why that was the case was, A, you know, look like, I don't know how much I really want to continue to shit on Mike Budenholzer, right? Like, he's a really good basketball coach who institutes really good fundamentals into the players in terms of how to play. And in the regular season, that works well because in the regular season, you're not necessarily... uh, playing a team seven straight times that is selling out to stop exactly what it is that you do. And I think that's why it works in the regular season, but in the playoffs, I was more frustrated with the defense than the offense from Budenholzer's perspective in this series. I was also frustrated with the playing time. I don't know that it's like worth continuing to harp on like Giannis only playing 36 minutes in you know, the first three games, because it's just so obvious in terms of an adjustment that needed to be made earlier that he needed to play Giannis more. Giannis is an alien. He can take on more than 36 minutes a night. Mike's response after game three was ridiculous, and we can just leave it at that. In On the offensive side, to me, it was more a problem of the Bucks not having enough guys who can create with the ball in hand and create some of those collapsing actions and defenses uh, that you need to create some of those driving lanes and uh, kick out opportunities and cutting lanes that Miami, for instance, orchestrated so well in this series. I, I blame 
the offensive side almost more on the front office than I do, uh, whereas the defensive side I blame more on Budenholzer. Do we think that that's a fair uh, assessment? Okay. <laughs> um, no, I think so. I think it's all sort of of a piece, and we and this is something that has been. Uh, other other people have talked about this. Uh, I, I think um, uh, Dave DeFore had a had a quote from a scout saying basically the same thing. And I'll put it in in sort of uh, game since it's the game theory podcast. I'll put it in game theoretic terms. Um, you know, there's a difference between you're preparing to play all 29 teams. You design one way to play. That's regular season basketball. That's game theory optimal. You're not really sure who you're playing on any given night. What gives you your best chance? Just overall. Uh, playoffs, you know who you're playing seven times. You know who they have, what they like to do. So you can design something much more specific, and that becomes more exploitive play. Um, and this is something that, like, there's there's always, you know, you you're, you sit in a, sit down on a poker table, the way you play against someone before you know anything about how they play uh, changes very much once you actually learn something about their tendencies. Um, and I think that is a a difference between things that, that can work in the regular season, sort of you see a team once every six weeks and, and, you know, something kind of catches you and there's you, on the fly, it's hard to adjust to versus, you know, studying it in great detail and drilling it and really keeping it fresh in your mind. And now you can take that away. Um, and so, you know, yeah, the 82 game versus 16 game player thing is reductive but there is some truth in that because there are certain things that you can kind of just know that we're not going to allow that or we're going to allow that at a far lower rate than you're used to getting it in the season and and so what are you going to do now now that this kind of bread and butter staple thing is is no longer in season the last thing that i'll kind of just close on here to close the loop on Milwaukee to me they just need to go out and get more creative guards who can really break down defenders and be a threat uh, offensively because while Eric Bledsoe is a good player like Eric Bledsoe is a good basketball player teams just don't guard him like they they just do not care to guard him in the playoffs anymore they know what he is Uh, I don't think I I think that I don't think it's a statement that he's not worth the contract that he's on I just think that it's a bad fit so I think that there, are, if we can make some generalities about things we've seen from this year's postseason to the extent that things from this year's postseason in particular are, are you know, extrapolatable into, um, you know, broader notions about playoff basketball, which they are to some degree and some degree they're not. But I think that um, uh, having kind of multi-skill versatility in the same player, not just having, you know, uh, not just having different clubs in the bag, but having a club you can hit different shots with. Uh, as I continue going just very different sports with my analogies today. Love um, it. Um, but that's, that's important. And, and second is, is I think that having, um, and I think we talked about this last time when we talked about the Celtics drafting philosophy, correct me if I'm wrong, but having that sort of, athleticism and physical stoutness throughout yeah. kind of the lineup are the two things that have really emerged as those are things you need more of in the postseason than you do in the regular season. Uh, and I think that's... Well, those those that's, guys tend to be versatile, I think, yeah. is the key. Uh, yeah. You need versatility. Like, there's a yeah, reason that Grant Williams is getting on the court right now for yep. Boston. 
Yep. And I, th- but I think that that's the, like, it's funny. Um, uh, my, the, the teams that were my preseason pick to, uh, make the Eastern Conference Finals uh, were uh, teams that that did not hear that enough in in terms of of uh, Milwaukee and Philadelphia. Now Philadelphia is a whole other thing. Uh, yeah. You're you know you're you're it, to some degree you're missing an all defense all NBA level player. So like calm down with the hot takes. But at the same time, th- the fact that that was that that without him there wasn't a, a guy who could enter the ball into the post is a problem. Speaking of Ben Simmons, obviously. Yeah, no question. I'm probably going to have a Philadelphia podcast at some point, uh, even beyond the one I recorded with Derek Bodner already, just because, whew, good Lord, uh, Philly, what a what a mess that is. And, you know, maybe it's worth transitioning into uh, who could potentially be the next coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. Next, uh, as we talk about Billy Donovan's departure from Oklahoma City, but first... Let's get a couple of advertisements in. All right, before we get back to Seth part now, I've got a few advertisements for you. Now's the time to celebrate. Football is finally back and DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, has millions of reasons why you should be excited to kick off the football season. DraftKings is giving new users a free shot at $1 million. Uh, that's the top prize in their Thursday night football single game showdown contest. There's going to be a total of $3 million up for grabs in this Thursday night's contest. Getting in on it is easy. All you have to do is download DraftKings using the promo code MAYS, M-A-Y-S. Draft six players from the season opener. Stay under the salary cap and see how your team stacks up against the competition. So head to the app now and start making it rain. Plus, new users who sign up today on DraftKings using that code MAZE will receive a free shot at the $1 million top prize with your first deposit. Nothing adds to the sweat of watching the game like having a shot at a million-dollar payday. Download the DraftKings app now and use that code MAZE for a limited time. New users can get a free shot at the $1 million top prize and $3 million in total prizes. Don't miss this extra special week one bonus. Enter code MAZE to get a free shot at the $1 million top prize with your first deposit. That's code MAZE only at DraftKings.com. Make it rain. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. All right, our third advertisement today is for Roman. Talking about erectile dysfunction is not easy. Usually men just brush it off or blame themselves, saying something like they lost their mojo or they avoid it altogether with excuses like they had a long day at work. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about it with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. 
A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication's appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AthleticNBA and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AthleticNBA today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com slash athletic nba get roman.com slash athletic nba all right now back to the conversation with seth part now all right and we're back here and let's talk about billy donovan because Woj reported yesterday that oklahoma city and Billy Donovan decided to mutually part ways. There are apparently no ill will between anyone within this relationship. And I find the whole thing very interesting because on one hand, Billy Donovan led Oklahoma City along with Chris Paul and Danilo Gallinari and Shea Gilgis-Alexander's leap and uh, a lot of the vets that they have, you know, between Stephen Adams and some of the younger guys they have coming off the bench. Lou Dort. To... Oh, sorry. Lou Dort's great. We I love had, Lou Dort. I had, something in my, I had something in my throat there. Uh, led them to a better-than-expected season. If you listen to Robbie Calland and I do preseason over-unders, as we do every year, you and I, or Robbie and I both said take the over on Oklahoma City because as long as they don't trade anyone, they're going to win uh, pretty darn close to 40 games. They well exceeded that, but this was a talented team led by Chris Paul. Can I gloat for a second? Go ahead, please. I, I, they actually, I, I, I undersold them. I, I had, I picked them to finish uh, sixth in the West this year, and they, and they, they, they even beat that by a spot. So I uh, feel pretty, pretty happy about that one for, for exactly the reasons you're talking about. It's just like that's a pretty good team they're putting on the floor. Between, you know, you start with you start with Chris Paul and Gallinari and Shea Gilgis Alexander and Stephen Adams. That's a pretty good four. And then, especially with what they got from Dennis Schroeder this year, like yep. that's, a, that's a that's a that's a very solid like you know playoff dangerous type team. So, in that respect, Billy Donovan, I think bringing together a lot of new pieces, bringing together not a lot of really uh, really good players that were in a new situation and playing together for the first time. I think he deserves a lot of credit for that, right? Like there's a reason that he was up for coach of the year awards this year. He didn't win the main one. Nick Nurse won that, deservedly so. But uh, I think overall it's reasonable to say that Billy Donovan – had a good year as the coach of Oklahoma City, correct? I think that yeah, there's, there's no there's no other way to view it. I don't think. Right. What I will say is this: this didn't come as like a total surprise to me that Oklahoma City decided to go in a different direction for not even just for the obvious reasons, almost of yeah, they have all of these picks and they have some older players. They have Gallinari, who's a free agent. Uh, Chris Paul is still getting older and has $80 million left on this contract. Like, yeah, it makes sense from a roster perspective 
for them to go in a different direction, given that they're going to move toward building around Shea and some of the younger guys that they bring in. Having said that, like, if you talk to people around the league and talk to advanced scouts, you talk to uh, NBA front office personnel, Billy Donovan is not exactly known as like an expert when it comes to X's and O's. Uh, for the most part, the people that I've spoken with think he's like definitely below average when it comes to that. And you saw some of that bear itself out in the Houston series. Like uh, the fact that it seemed like in fourth quarters, he really struggled to get Chris Paul open opportunities. I, I think that that is one that stands out to me. Uh he obviously pushed the right buttons with Lou Dort, but it took him a pretty long time in that series to go small. Again, like th- there were ways to do this. They could have played Darius Baisley more minutes at the five. They could have uh, not gone with Gallinari and played the four guards, right? Because that was that had a lot of success against Houston uh, in the last few games. Like th- there were things that he could have done that I think would have changed the dynamics and the schemes on the court that would have been advantageous to them. So, and I think that that's where the idea of coaching gets really complicated, especially when evaluating how good a coach is. And this is something Seth that you have talked about a lot because there is a lot more that goes into coaching than simply what we see from an X's and O's perspective on the court. Uh, it's very clear to me that Billy Donovan is very good at organizing a team and everything that goes into the off-court aspect of coaching. I think there are some questions still about Billy Donovan's on-court acumen from an NBA perspective. I mean, how do we try and parse through all of these distinct and very almost dissonant ideas as we uh, try to evaluate how good a coach is. So there's almost, there's a third aspect also that is, okay, you, you've never been super enamored of the stuff Billy Donovan ran. Look at his teams. Like um, it's not like teams with Russell Westbrook on them have ever been known for precision in terms of, of, of stuff they run. Um, and, you know, okay, that's, that's, we're basically, we're talking about Scotty Brooks and Billy Donovan. So, so, you know, they're, they're like chicken, little chicken and egg stuff going on there. But also you're, now you're looking at a team that, you know, part of the reason some people had questions about the, the Thunder this year is they had, they had some, some weirdness. I mean, with, uh, in terms of, of creating sort of, what we might describe as like aesthetically like coachy basketball. Um, and when your best lineup has basically three point guards, um, you're a little bit limited um, because you have three guys who all kind of want to, want to have the ball and do their thing. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily play in with, you know, a lot of like, you know, wrinkly dribble handoffy, you know, let's run it through, through, you know, Nikola Jokic or Bam Adebayo at the elbow kind of beautiful game basketball. So there's a little bit of a personnel element to this, too. Like, you can look at that roster and say, yep. you know, the best way this team is going to score is we find which one of those three guys has the has the matchup and just, like, you know, do something and get a, get them on an island and go. Um, and that's, that, that you know, that might not be 
um, elegant, but it is at, at minimum crudely effective and often more than that. So uh, that's not to completely excuse a lot of what you're saying and certainly some of the the tactical adjustments in terms of, of personnel defensive scheme that those are all well taken. But I think that's something that has to be and and really gets short shrift when we when we talk about these kind of coachy things is like, you know, there there are players who can run a certain type of very of very intricate offense and players who are either by ability or by inclination going to be more free flowing. Um and I think Donovan his his talent as an NBA coach has definitely gone away from the from the the intricate and more towards the the free form because you know what one of the issues that that you know both those Westbrook teams and now this year's teams too has is like there's guys on there's going to be guys on the floor who don't have much with the ball in their hands right or much shooting in space yeah what it's worth as well yeah yeah so there's so there's some some limitations of talent there as well um so that you didn't ask that question, but I wanted to answer it anyway. No, and I, I think that it's a great point to bring up, particularly in regard to the three-point guard lineup, right? Like, very few coaches, I think, would have been willing to do that. And, like, they might have tried it in small doses, but I think very few coaches would have been willing to just play to their personnel in the way that Billy Donovan did during the regular season, right? And he closed a lot of those games in the playoffs as well with that lineup. I think that he deserves credit for being flexible. Like, and this isn't me saying that I think Billy Donovan's a bad NBA coach. Like, I just think that the conversation with coaching is so difficult because of the things that we don't know. Like, I I think Billy Donovan is a good, is a very good coach, if anything. Uh, But there are aspects of Billy Donovan that we've seen bear themselves out throughout the course of his career that point to less value. Like, uh, trying to figure out how good a coach is is exceptionally, ridiculously difficult. And I think that Billy Donovan right now is the guy that almost embodies that most for me because of aspects like what you said that he is very clearly very good at. Uh, like if I was Philadelphia, like I would be interested on in kicking the tires with Billy Donovan. He is clearly shown that he can get something out of a team that has mismatched parts, right? And figuring out a way to hold guys accountable and figuring out a way to uh, get the most out of an ill-fitting group of players. Like that, that would really intrigue me if I was them. Uh, if I was New Orleans, I would be pretty intrigued by Billy Donovan, given his history with younger players in the league and given, uh, you know, for instance, the leap that Shea Alexander took this year, uh, the way that Lou Dort was able to get real minutes despite being undrafted, uh, even though, like, look, I had a first round grade on Lou, but like he's not a typical undrafted guy. But for a rookie to even play that many minutes in the playoffs, even if he's a first round pick is a credit, I think, to Billy Donovan. Uh, the fact that Darius Baisley was good this year and was way more playable than what anyone thought he would be coming into the year, I think is a credit to that coaching staff and Billy Donovan. So there are situations out there where I'm like, yeah, like these teams should really strongly look at Billy Donovan. I, I just think it's very difficult to try and parse through all of the aspects 
that go into coaching right now across the NBA uh, because so many of them are not visible. Yeah, there are like there are there are coaches who I haven't liked what they've done who've had pretty good results, and it's it's so it's always yep. like I I've never really you know enjoyed Nate McMillan teams. Yep, but his teams overperformed their talent. But and so you're you're left in that situation is like okay this guy's maybe a maybe better than I give him credit for at something maybe still if you're trying to win a championship maybe these these things that I do see that are wrong are problems yep um and so you're just you're kind of um it's a it's a variable skill much in the same way or a, a multifaceted skill much in the same way as being an offensive and defensive player is yep. and because it's been studied so little I think I don't think we have a good sense of like you know talked about 16 game uh, 82 game players and 16 game players like i think there's probably something to being you know that and that in coaching but i don't think we really know what those like have really an idea of what those things are um like sir we like flexibility and blah 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 but um you know you can be too flexible you can be too reactive um there are definitely coaches who get in the playoffs and just start throwing stuff up against the wall and with with no um you know, rhyme or reason. So, um, so it's not just like, oh, you got to be flexible. It's like you also have to have the ability to evaluate what's going on a game and, and kind right. of surmise the kind of things that might work while also like getting your team to buy in while you're trying this crazy stuff and guys have guys being willing to accept, you know, uh, gaining and losing prominence in the rotation based on these adjustments and have that like stick instead of guys pout. Um, which is not, you know, it's not nothing. I mean, there's already there are already too many mouths to feed on most NBA rosters, and then you start to, you know, bounce guys around a little bit, and that it just has a way of exacerbating that. That's yeah. hard. Well, and you know, like Mike Budenholzer, going back to him, like this is a great example of this. Like, you want to have a scheme, you want to have the fundamentals down, you want to you want to have everyone on your team comfortable with what the game plan is going in but you can't be inflexible as well. Like there's a difference. There's a Goldilocks zone here, right? We, we, yeah. You need the coach who's the baby bear. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> no, but I think that there's, you know, every, all of these debates kind of, kind of come back to that where you don't, you can't be, it's, it's, you know, so many of these debates are are set up as polar opposites, where like the right answer is is some balance in between, right? And and you know, it's not a scientific answer; it's the art of figuring out exactly where that kind of fulcrum is that you you balance the you balance the weights perfectly so that it doesn't tip off one side or the other of of kind of the beam. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, is it? I would imagine that. For me, at least, the best coach out there for Oklahoma City is probably Kenny Atkinson, given the direction that it seems likely they're going to go here and building around Shea and some draft picks and some of the younger guys on that roster like Baisley and Dort. Uh, is there a name out there that stands out for you? Um, I, you know, I, I don't feel like we know enough about kind of the untested folks to know if one of them would be right would be would be good or not i mean i think that um something you know we go back to there's there's you know two assistants 
that I worked with in Milwaukee that I both think are very interesting coaching candidates. And, and I, I can name, you know, I can I can throw out the names, Darvin Ham and Charles Lee, and say I think they, yep. they, they might have a chance to be good coaches. I'm sure, and, you know, you see the list that um, um, Indiana has come out with. I mean, it's a list 10 names deep with a lot of, you know, people who have who've gotten praise as being, you know, interesting candidates over the last couple of years. And and I don't think we really know um, what that's going to look like. I mean, it's it's and it's, you know, how are you going to play? How can you develop players? How are you going to work with the the organization in terms of of the plan for the team? Um how are you going to motivate players? How are you going to keep, you know, if if the team is taking a step back, what does that mean if they can't trade Stephen Adams and he's on the team and he's used to, you know, playing at a certain level most of his career and now we're in a different place? And, you know, yes, Stephen, we got to get we got to get Darius Baisley, uh, buy all the Darius Baisley stock, by the way, uh, <laughs> get him, you know, 25, 26 minutes a night. So you're going to play about 22 minutes. Sorry, Stephen, um, you know. How is it? How is the coach going to be able to handle that situation? Hypothetically speaking, um, we j- f- from the outside judging it, it's really hard to tell. Um, I, you know, I think based on what we know, I think that the, of course Kenny Atkinson would be a, would w- it seems like he would be a solid person in that role. But at the same time, there is also some of the the veteran egos that might still be around. That is part of the reason why he is no longer the coach of the Nets is running afoul of that a little bit. Now, was that hyper-specific to that situation? Maybe, but you know, you don't know. And that's, I think that's the underlying point you're making. Yeah. And I guess that the last question that we can finish on here is, do you think Chris Paul is on the Oklahoma City Thunder next year? Probably not. Well, he's probably he probably does not finish the season with Oklahoma City next year. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think I agree with you on that. Uh, I, If I was Oklahoma City, I would move him this summer. Because he just had an unbelievable season where he got through it without any soft tissue injuries. He should be an all-NBA team member this year. Uh, There's only two years left on the contract, so a team could pretty easily sell themselves on the high salary, even though he does have. I I think that's the sticking point right there. I think... It's the high salary, for sure. Yeah, no, I think, I think... You know, getting a team that was is going to not make you take a poison pill back. Um, you know, trading him basically uh, at this point would would Oklahoma City take just like neutral value in terms of of you know we we have contracts that are that are you know not onerous and and short term and and maybe a maybe one pick or something like that if that just kind of to to to. You know, if they could, would they trade him into space for free for a trade exception? Yes. So working backwards from there, you have to find a team that's that's going to be willing to take on that salary. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's stranger things have happened. Oh, sorry, I sneezed. Did you say something? Oh, no, I, I I I thought I heard something there. I must have um, mentioned it. Yeah, and the obvious connection here is that, like, Milwaukee, uh, Mark Stein reported it yesterday after the Bucks lost that they'll explore something involving Chris Paul. 
I think that makes a whole lot of sense. It's just going to be exceptionally difficult in regard to the salary cap to make that happen. Like it, it has to involve moving like very real pieces out of that Bucks core for it to work. I think, I mean, I think the, the mechanics of it are fairly straightforward. It's the, the appetite for it, which is the, which is, is, is the, let me, cause that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big wad of money in an older player. And so that's, that's, you know, the, the, the balancing the two sides of the ledger on a trade that works for a number of teams isn't actually that hard. It's just like, woof, do I want to do that? And that's where the, that's where the difficulty comes in. And that's, that's going to be the reason if he starts the season on Oklahoma City, that's going to be the reason why. Not, not, I don't think, their unwillingness to move him or their holding out for too dear a price. The last thing we wanted to talk about here is that the 2020-21 season uh, has officially been pushed back, the off season as well. Uh, the NBA draft is not going to be held on October 16th, which, I mean, I think I've written that a few different times now. Well, but... can, I, can I break some news to you live on the pod? Ooh, let's have fun. Let's, let's happen while we've, while we've been recording. Woj has reported that uh, the target date right now is November 18th. Yeah, I've heard mid-November. Uh, I've heard as... You know, Woj, I'm sure, is more connected on this than I am. Um, basically, the target dates that I were told was anywhere from mid-November to, like, early December. Uh, so that certainly lines up with where I am on this, so I'm not particularly surprised. Uh, as Woj reported here, and as I reported last week, a significant part of why teams wanted that draft pushed back uh, was to allow the NBA and MBPA more time to negotiate the new salary cap numbers for 2020-2021. Uh, teams need those figures to be able to conduct trades around the draft. I think I wrote that last week, like basically word for word. Um, so, yeah, no, that's absolutely what's happening here. Teams want to know, do they have to use draft picks to get off of bad salary because the salary cap is going to come in lower than what they expect? Like imagine if you're Philadelphia, you have the 21st overall pick. Do you need that pick to get off of the Al Horford deal? Do you need that pick to get someone excited about taking Tobias Harris because your owners tell you that you're not going to take or they're not going to pay as much luxury tax next year? Uh, teams absolutely need that information before holding the draft. So, yeah, this is uh, this is not a surprise. No. Um, and, and, and for everything you said, just you, you, you can't ask people to assemble a team not knowing the rules yep and that's that's basically you know you and also like draft trades are good tv so that's another, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's another you know the the annual oh, he's wearing he's wearing the wrong hat uh thing is is you know it's a tradition that 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 you know we need to continue really yeah i agree i'm excited to continue that tradition um what was your reaction, though, yesterday when you saw that it was likely to be pushed back? I feel like it was just the very obvious thing to do, right? I mean, I like like you, I've been hearing that this is this was coming for for a while. And I'm, I'm I, that frankly, that's actually a little bit earlier than, than I've heard. Um, November 18th. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, like mid November to early December was what yeah, I was it doesn't told. It, it doesn't seem like there's any great need to rush. I think that. 
you know, even working from a November 18th date, like what that 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 strongly implies the start of next season sometime in 2021. Um, just from a from a timing standpoint. Um, so which is, you know, a um, a desire to play as much of next season with fans in attendance as possible and still operating in a, in sort of a vacuum of knowledge as to when that might be and how that might look, but that's where we are. Yeah. I'm just fascinated with where the season starts next year. Uh, I, I honestly don't know. Like we, we can, throw out dates and like we can throw out as early as Christmas or we can throw out as late as uh, like March. Like I think that Hollinger and uh, DA wrote on our site, like what was that? Maybe like a month ago. Does time like kind of meld for you still (laughs) so much. Like (laughs) you could tell me that DA and Hollinger wrote that in June or you could tell me that it happened like two weeks ago and I'd be like, Oh, okay. I think it it was closer to two weeks ago. (laughs) I think. But it's like you said, it's, it's, you know, it's, we're, we're in, we're in interstellar right now and we're not sure which, which, uh, you know, which planet we're going to, we're visiting. So time is elongating in in strange ways. It really is. Um, You want to talk about the draft a little bit. So I'm going to give you the floor to talk about draft players and frankly, their floors. So. There's 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 something that's been bouncing around. I, I just got done talking about like what the lessons of like this playoffs are for. And it's natural to want to take that and look at, you know, at the, the players in this draft and say, well, this skill is more important. Therefore, that guy is going to be better. And I feel like that's a pretty strong error uh, in terms of guys who can do certain things at a, you know, a top you know, eight to 10 team playable level are very valuable. That doesn't tell us much about whether the guys in this year's draft class or any draft class are actually going to be able to do that. Yes, uh, a creative player who can score efficiently on multiple levels and make reads and make passes is an important player in this day and age. I think we already knew that. And the fact that it's more important doesn't make it more or less likely that Anthony Edwards is actually going to be able to do that. So making the leap from, wow, look at, look at these, these look, look at Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray and how important they are to their team. Let, let's go get another one. Well, you already wanted to go get another one. And it doesn't, that shouldn't change right. your evaluation of the player. Uh, and, you know, if you're betting on a guy being special, in a certain way in the draft, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. If you're saying if he hits his 90th outcome percentage percentile outcome, he'll be pretty good. That means nine times in 10, he's, he's falling short of your expectations. Yeah. It's a bad the, bet. The cipher for that this year is Alexei Pukashevsky, right? How much of, have you watched any of him yet? Yeah. I have no idea what I'm looking at. Yeah. It's kind of where I'm at with him. Like, <laughs> Yeah, there's a case where if he hits his 90th percentile outcome, he's like an all-star, right? Because guys who are seven foot tall shouldn't move like he does. And guys who are seven foot tall shouldn't have the fluid shot that he does. And like, look, would I take Pukashevsky in the lottery? Because I think there aren't too many other guys in this draft that 
are worth this or maybe the better phrase is top 16 or 17 or something as opposed to like nailing it down to the lottery yeah i probably would because the mystery box of what he is in a draft where i think there are probably 16 or 17 guys that i really really like once we get past that point i'd be like okay sure i'm willing to take a leap on a guy being a difference maker but yeah 100 percent like you have to figure out, for instance, in the case of Anthony Edwards, like what is the likelihood that Anthony Edwards shoots, period, right? Anthony Edwards shot 29% from three this year. There's like a little bit of a hitch at the top of his jumper. He has all the body mechanic stuff to get separation on his shot whenever he wants. Like we, we know that. We, we don't need to project that. He can already do it. But pro- the projection aspect with Anthony Edwards is what happens if he doesn't shoot it well, he probably becomes like maybe slightly more athletic Dion Waiters, right? I mean, on on one hand, he's 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 bigger than Dion Waiters. On the other hand, I think Dion Waiters probably um, probably hit above his median outcome as an NBA player. Certainly not what the Cavs thought his median median outcome was, <laughs> but in general, I agree well, with you. Okay, well, you know, he he. he got overdrafted because reasons. Right. Um, so, you know, but cause shout yeah. out Chris Grant. Yeah. Um, so, but it's, it's, but there's this, this notion out there that you can, you can say, well, this guy, the, the, like you're talking about floors, like, you know, you tend to be uh, far more of an optimist on these guys than I am. Uh, and I, and this is somewhat comes from, uh, the best use of, of kind of metrics and analytics and draft work is winnowing the field. Uh, I, I'm not, I never felt like we, we did a we could do a great job of, of identifying guys who were definitely going to be able to play. We did a pretty good job of figuring out who couldn't, who wasn't ever going to be able to. And so you do that long enough and you start to, it, it's much more, you're looking for reasons to get to know. Uh, and so maybe that's the maybe I, I'm coming at it from that angle a little bit too much. But if you're again, if you're asking for oh look how well Lute Dort did as a defender, doesn't that change the the uh, the floor? On the, no, Lute Dort turns out to be a guy who is a massively stout on ball defender right. that you can't say ex ante about anybody in this year's draft because you can't say it ex ante about anybody in any draft. Yeah, no, I think that you have to evaluate every player on their individual merits. Like, I don't, I don't like the idea of like, like people are comparing the the comparison du jour is like, oh yeah, and Yucca Kongwu, he could be the next Bam Adebayo, right? Just because he's six nine, six ten, with well, really like six nine, a seven foot one wingspan, and. Uh, can really move his feet on the perimeter. And it's like, yeah, well, what makes Bam so valuable is that not only is he a good defender, he also can like initiate plays from the high post and can dribble and can do a lot of different shit that like at any level that we've seen from Onyeka Kongwu so far, and we've seen a lot from Onyeka Kongwu as scouts, because if you remember, he was on like the ball family's Chino Hills basketball team when he was a freshman in high school. He's never shown any of that latent offensive ability that Bam did when he was playing AAU with like Dennis Smith, right? Yeah. Although, I mean, it's that—that's actually. I mean, you're playing on on Chino Hills. How much? How much? 
of the time does he get to play with the ball in his hand? So it is. It, so there sure. is. And like, if you squint, if you squint, there is a little bit. Well, you know, Bam never got a chance to show what he could do at Kentucky, and and there's, there there's a similarity there. Right. But that doesn't but in AAU. Like, Bam did show this stuff. Like it yeah. wasn't even like, oh yeah, he didn't show it when he was at Kentucky. Okay. Like I remember talking to. I'm not going to say what coach it was, but I was talking to a coach. Um, at an AAU event, like a what prominent head coach and, who has developed like top five draft picks before. And he goes, that guy there, Bam Adebayo, he's the best player in this high school class. And it was when Bam was ranked like 10th or 15th. And he's going to be the number one overall pick in the draft. And that didn't happen because Kentucky, you know, and I don't want to blame Kentucky. Like I think Kentucky probably prepped him for uh, a role in the NBA and he was probably better earlier on in his career because Kentucky prepped him for the role, but we didn't get to see what he could do early in his career uh, at Kentucky because Kentucky limited him and put him in a box. Right. Uh, yeah. And then there's also, this is where, you know, my, my general, I'm not sure what uh, draft workouts are good for kind of thing. Bam is kind of the exception. Uh, Cause he walked on the floor and like four minutes in is like, Oh, this is the best player. We're going to work out all, all, all draft draft season. Yeah, because what this you is, had, what pick did you guys have? We had 17. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, that was and, the Don, and it was just, No, that wasn't the Dante draft. Who? What draft was that? That was uh, DJ Wilson. DJ Wilson, that's right. Yeah, so he did not get to us. But no. uh, but it was, it was you know, like I, I already liked him for his, his kind of defensive versatility and, 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 and those things. And then the skill level just was like, oh, man, this is a guy. Right. Um, uh, so, but yeah, so, but y- your point is, is that he, he demonstrated those things that you're projecting onto him as opposed to, okay, some of the, some of the, uh, some of the Kentucky guards have come in and, and, and had a lot more on the ball than, than they necessarily showed at Kentucky. Right. Like Mike uh, Prada like, tweeted and I like, like Mike's great. Like, I don't mean yeah. this like negatively. Um, and you know, when Mike writes his book, please everyone go buy his book. Uh, it's going to be great. It's on NBAX and knows like, please do it i don't mean this as negatively as it's going to come off but like mike tweeted yesterday like how did tyler hero fall to number 13 in the draft tyler hero was like a top 30 recruit in the country not a five-star kid who was good at you know whitnall wisconsin's high school right was great there but that's a that's a legendary program i have no idea yeah like was was like a great (laughs) player there but you know, was mostly just like your run of the mill, like borderline four or five star. And then at Kentucky, he was like second team all SEC because Kentucky had a bunch of dudes there and he didn't get a chance to show off a ton of what he could do. And the SEC names like 10 guys to their all SEC team. So like Tyler Hero, based off of like what the coaches thought in the SEC last year, was not even a top 10 player in the SEC. So like, Whenever I hear like, oh, my God, how did this guy fall? It's like, well, do the fucking homework before you ask, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you I mean, you ask why he fell. I mean, it, it's it's a pretty easy answer is Malik Monk. Well, it's, like, it's that's, not that's, that, that's, though. No, like, but that's like, the, but that's I mean, if like if, if like a better college player, but similar kind of uh, is, I mean, maybe maybe Tyler's a little bit bigger, maybe. Uh, I think but, he's a little bit bigger. He's not as thick. Like Malik's actually yeah. like super strong throughout his lower yeah. half. Like the the thing with Tyler was he was a defender that gave effort last year at Kentucky, but was not really a great defender. Right? Like he's six foot five with a six four and a half wingspan. I think. Um, 
he's he i mean he's he struggled to contain the ball and uh in like indiana the best stuff they got in their first round series was i mean malcolm brogdon basically driving the ball straight through his chest repeatedly right and then in terms of his like on ball ability kentucky with its off guards they run like a bunch of these like pin downs to get him the ball so that he can catch and shoot, right? Because, like, their wings don't really get a ton of opportunities to create on the ball because it's like that, you know, uh, drive and kick, dribble drive offense where the point guard is the guy that gets to handle everything. He didn't really get a chance to show that he had more shit to him with the ball than what we've seen. And, like, yeah, you can go back to the AAU stuff, but he's playing, and you can go back to high school, but he's playing a bunch of like unathletic kids in Wisconsin, and you have no idea how that's going to translate, right? So, like, that's how someone like Tyler Hero falls to 13. It's because, you know, we didn't know how good he was on ball. Uh, frankly, I thought it was pretty impressive that the Heat drafted him at 13 and drafted him as high as they did. Like, I, I don't even think it's a this guy fell to 13. I, I, it's an, I'm impressed that Miami evaluated him as well as they did thing. Yeah. And, and I think, but my point about, you know, making the Malik Monk comparisons, like, Oh, guy, Kentucky didn't get a chance to show. It's like, well, okay. For every, you know, Devin Booker, who, who it turns out to be much more skilled uh, than he was able to show at, at Kentucky, for example, how many guys go the other way. Sure. Uh, and it's, yeah. and it's, you know, these kind of the, the, you know, the undersized two shooter is not a fertile ground for high draft picks. Now, some of the guys, some guys make it, um, you know, you, sometimes you get, you know, you get a, uh, you know, uh, a Landry Shamit or something like that, who, who ends up being a 40% NBA three-point shooter. Okay, that's the guy who made it. Now, pick which of the, pick which guy is that beforehand. Tell me which of those. Okay, you, you've a, you've a group of ten broadly similar players. Two or three of them are going to make it as NBA rotation players. Tell me which which two or three. And you know, I think we would. I think you line up ten people, you'll get ten different answers for that. And that's why guys fall because it's like it's not just the guy; it's the archetype that that has a uh, a, a uphill road to hoe to make it as an NBA player. And yes, some of them will develop, but, but figuring out which one is very difficult. Yeah. You know who was fucking incredible in college? Nick Stauskas. Stauskas could create on the ball in pick and rolls. He was obviously an elite level shooter. He's still an elite level shooter. But when he got to the NBA, it got too athletic for him. Right. Like he just couldn't create at all and didn't have any of that latent pick and roll ability. And look, part of this is context, right? Like playing for John Beeline, I, I think certainly helped him. Like having that well-spaced floor offensively was an enormous boon for him. Uh, it, it really, really helped him be able to drive and get those lanes to get all the way to the basket to showcase some of that pick and roll ability. And uh, obviously everyone knew that he was a shooter. Right. So like that wasn't really going to be a thing, but there is less difference between Nick Stauskas and Tyler Hero, I think, than one would generally believe. Part of it is that Hero is a better ball handler, which, you know, you can go back and, like I said, watch high school tape of Tyler Hero and see see it now. And you're like, oh, yeah, like, I get it. I get where this is coming from. But you don't necessarily know how that's going to translate to good old hindsight goggles. Yeah. Like, you don't necessarily know how that's going to translate to NBA yeah. level athleticism. Right. Um, 
the big thing that's the difference between Nick Stauskas and Tyler Hero is just the irrational confidence that Tyler has, right? Like that guy never doesn't believe in well, himself. Let me let me let me posit something else. Maybe the biggest difference is Miami and Sacramento. Yeah, I think that that's true too. But like part of it is it's also a chicken and the egg thing. Like, did Sacramento just not do a good enough job of evaluating Nick Stauskas' Nick mindset? Did they think that like did other teams maybe believe that he would uh, lose confidence a little bit earlier? Whereas with Miami, they evaluated Tyler Hero. Uh, and knew that he was like a hyper confident human being because like he was like, that was, that's something that I knew coming into this, right. Is that Tyler hero was always going to have the confidence and never back down. Right. I'm, I'm always a little skeptical of that sort of thing after the fact, because there's like, if you, you think about, you go back, Oh, he's, he's so confident. He can't possibly. And then three years later, whatever happened to, um, you know, so I think sure. it, it's there, there's, there's such a, there's such a survivor bias in terms of the times we made that, that particular type of call, right. That I am like, I, you know, like Contavious not, Caldwell Pope is very, confident. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not denigrating that as a reason why one guy makes it another doesn't, but I am questioning our ability to properly identify whether that's a real thing or not. Well, and whether to properly contextualize it too. Yeah. Whether there's, you know, you can be, you can be outwardly confident and, 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 but some guys are outwardly confident because they've always been the best player ever and ever. And then they, they suddenly find themselves the 11th best guy in an NBA team and they have no idea what to do with themselves and they don't have any resiliency and they can't come back from that. Like that's as, that's as common a story as, you know, Tyler Hero's ironclad confidence in himself, winning him, you know, way to to a you know closer role with with a, you know a conference finalist. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, anything else you want to talk about before you get out of here? Oh man, um, I am. Uh, I kind of after we spent uh, after we spent most of this podcast gassing up the heat. I kind of feel like the, the the Eastern Conference champion is coming from the other series. I would agree with that. Um, I, I think I said that on the last podcast as well. Uh, I think Toronto is a particularly bad matchup for Miami. Uh, they can just stymie a lot of those kind of off-ball actions that Miami runs. I, I think both teams are bad matchups for Miami, frankly. Yeah. I think like Boston and Miami are 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 somewhat similar. Boston just has better better dudes. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Like and and you know who guards Kemba? Who guards Kemba in that series? You probably do some weird cross matching to where Jimmy ends up on Kemba. Okay, Jimmy's on Kemba now. Who guards Tatum? Uh, you probably close with like Iguodala and Crowder to guard yeah. Tatum and uh, Brown. Are how happy are you <laughs> doing that? You know how, like seriously, how like I just you just said your 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 closing games with Jake Crowder having to stay in front of of Jason Tatum. How how do you feel about that? Not great. I mean, yeah, you, you try and probably steal minutes with Derek Jones, just being yeah. super athletic and tiring guys out. Maybe yeah, like throughout yeah, a game. True. Yeah, but so anyway. Um, but no, I agree with you. I, I think that the winner of the East comes out of that series. But you know, I've 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 been wrong enough before that uh, that 
who knows? Let's let's watch and find out because it's uh, that's that's why they play the games. Yeah, like I thought that Miami, I thought Miami would win the first round series as I talked with Mo DeKeel, but I thought that was a six or seven game series against Indiana, and they just fucking blew them out of the water. Yeah, like that was unbelievable, and they're eight and one in the playoffs right now for a reason. Uh, they are and could can could very easily have been eight and zero too. Right, a hundred percent. So. Yeah, Miami's really good. Uh, I don't mean to take anything away from them, but yeah, I would take both Toronto and Boston against them. Uh, and I'm sure that's just the way that Miami wants it, right? Yeah, I, I actually think the 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 Toronto series would be interesting. Just I, I kind of feel like Toronto's lack of shot creation that has hurt yeah. them against Boston would would not cease to be an issue against Miami. No, I agree with you. I do think, as I said on the last podcast with Jay King that uh, I, I do think it's going to be Boston that comes out of that series. And it's easy to say now that they're up 3-2, but uh, they've just created easier shots, I think, throughout the course of that series at the end of the day. So it's funny, actually, if you look at the if you look at some of the underlying metrics, the, the shot quality is actually reasonably close. The problem is, is like, what is a good shot for Kemba Walker and what is a good shot for Fred Van Vliet are very different things. Right. Exactly. And I think that that's where I kind of yeah come to it. Like their good players are getting easier shots. Well, and, and all getting not For just them. easier shots, but getting their shots. Right. So John Schumann today really uh, tweeted out a stat that really kind of illustrates uh, a problem that, that Toronto's had um, in the series is, is Pascal Siakam normally takes uh, 20% of his shots in, in the first seven seconds of the shot clock. Uh, over the regular season, it's twenty percent. Uh, first round series, twenty percent. So far in this series against Boston, he's taken two two shot attempts of of eighty some have been in the first seven seconds of the shot clock, which is just a way of illustrating how hard he's having to work in situations where he does not have an advantage against whether it's Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Shemi Ojale, Grant Williams, whoever else. Um, and that's the kind of bind that that I think Boston is putting teams in defensively and will continue to do uh, presuming they they make the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, You know, what that says to me is like that Toronto is just getting zero transition opportunities, right? And not getting a chance to get easy offense as much as anything. And, And beyond that, how important that easy offense is to, you know, some of their more dynamic offensive players. Yep. Yeah, like the big thing that I mentioned uh, with Jay King was like, this is the series where Kyle Lowry can make his Hall of Fame case. Because if they win this series, it's going to have to be on his back as a creative offensive force that knocks down a ton of pull-up jumpers. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all, <laughs> Seth. Tell the people where they can find your work coming up here. Uh, you can read me, uh, if not every day, most days during the playoffs at The Athletic uh, on Twitter, at Seth Partnow. And uh, um, for, if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, um, now's some of the time to, to check out some of the uh, new subscriber experiences we have. Um, I, I'm really excited about the, the uh, briefs functionality we've rolled out, which is almost an expanded uh, Twitter on the, on the uh, Athletic app, which I think I'm going to get a lot of use out of uh, in-game. Yeah, I'm excited for that uh, as well. Uh, I will have a big Charlotte Hornets draft preview, offseason preview coming up 
tomorrow, Thursday on The Athletic. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye. Thank you.